evening, and welcome back to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale teaches us when it comes to dummies, there's way more than meets the eye. Please enjoy Wax. The irony of most ghost towns is that they are, in fact, for the most part, thriving places full of people. Sure, tourists don't count as residents, but a few hundred visitors a day hardly counts as abandoned, if you ask me. The ghost town of Calamity, California is located just 10 miles east of where I grew up. If you've ever made your way from L.A. to Las Vegas, you've passed by Calamity. You've probably seen the signs for it just before the alien-themed jerky shop. It was founded in the 1890s around a series of silver mines, and the town's population rose along with the price of silver, and then it crashed right along with it. Some people stayed behind, but aside from a rustic charm and a relatively cheap one-room bar, it didn't offer much. Most of the residents made their way 15 miles west, just across the highway to a slightly more developed township. One of the people that stuck around, though, was the grandfather of J.P. Pierce, a name you might know if you've visited any one of his many theme parks scattered across the country. As a child, J.P. Pierce spent some time with his grandfather in Calamity, helping stock the general store. Young J.P. collected a lot of wonderful childhood memories in that small town, but after his grandfather passed, it would be years before he returned. And when he did, J.P. Pierce was no longer the little boy that helped drag bags of grain across the dirt road. Now he had grown into a successful businessman and restaurateur. In an effort to recapture the memories that he felt molded him into the successful man that he was, J.P. Pierce purchased the mostly abandoned town outright and set to restoring it to the shape it had been in when he was a child. To maintain authenticity, J.P. allowed everyone still residing in Calamity to stay, while funding not only the remodel of their homes, but also employing them in the project. After about four years of reconstruction, J.P. reopened the town of Calamity as a tourist destination, and some say as the first official theme park in the western United States. Billed as an authentic ghost town, Calamity operated for the next few decades, run by both the residents and employees sourced from nearby non-ghost towns. It was a charming attraction and brought a lot of traffic, arguably more than the Silver ever did. Unfortunately, as it goes with all empires, This one, too, eventually fell into disrepair, closing sometime in the late 80s. As the town failed, the remaining residents employed by J.P. left for better opportunities. Calamity had finally become a true ghost town, except for two living souls still walking the abandoned streets, the Winter Brothers. Edward and Danny Winter were descendants of the Winter Clan, one of the first families to lay claim to a silver mine near Calamity. So close, in fact, that as J.P. expanded the town into a park, the winter mine found itself nearly at the center of town. The brothers were considered an attraction of sorts, as real authentic miners, still chipping away at their claim and living down in the tunnels that their ancestors had carved out. From what I recall, when the land was finally turned over to the state as part of a state park program, old Danny was still living down there underground, despite the fact that he could no longer claim ownership to the mine. When J.P. gifted Calamity back to the state of California, he did so in the hopes that it would once again be turned into a tourist attraction. 
Well, JP got his wish and Calamity was officially recognized as California's official silver mining ghost town. When the state took over, they restored a lot of the old buildings, built up a campsite, and designated the whole area as a national park. Unfortunately, this also meant that old Danny had to move. He didn't have much to take with him, and the one thing he valued, he had to leave behind. See, over the years, Danny had crafted dozens of lifelike wax figures and placed them throughout the tunnels to keep him company. The wax could only be preserved in the coolness of the mine. Plus, he had nowhere to haul them to. So, Danny left, but the wax figures remained. The mine that he once called home was eventually turned into a real attraction. The state made a haunted mine car using the existing rail system. For many, it was the most popular attraction, but for others, it's kind of a boring, slow trek through dark tunnels populated by creepy wax figures. You either love or hate the Calamity Ghost Town haunted mine car ride. That's for sure. And as of a month ago, I have no choice but to kind of love it because I officially became a proud employee and operator of it. Yay me. As far as summer jobs go, it's not a bad one. Art school is expensive and does very little to prepare you for the small town job market. I was kind of desperate. So my best friend Patrick went to bat for me and helped me get the job. His grandfather actually managed Calamity for as long as I could remember. And he was the one who actually brokered the deal between JP and the state. Patrick had worked there since he was 15. He was pretty much park royalty, and that was why also both him and I were able to secure the sweetest gig in all of Calamity. You see, June to August can be pretty unbearable out here, so much so that even the new AC unit struggled to keep it under 80. It's no secret that the only comfortable place in the summer in the whole park is down in those mines. The subterranean cool just can't be beat. It is half the reason people still pay a premium for tickets to ride it. Some just hop on for a quick, cool catnap, myself included. Of course, down there the reception sucks, but for some reason, texts still come through. That's why sometimes, on slow days, Patrick and I would take turns sneaking down into the tunnels for one of those quick catnaps while the other served as a lookout, always ready to send a wake-up text if the boss dropped by or if we had some visitors. With so many people passing through those caves, it was only a matter of time before someone complained about the slightly outdated displays. Now, they are meant to showcase a time, long ago, where sensibilities and social norms weren't as sophisticated as they are now. Case in point, the only female wax figure down there is busy at work emptying the bathroom bucket. Don't even get me started on the two adult brothers that share a bed made out of hay and flour sacks. Now mind you, this display was supposed to be about the Winter Brothers, who were very much alive in the 1970s, when twin mattresses were widely available. But that wasn't the biggest issue we had. People accept the history of it all, and it wasn't even the creepy, uncanny valley aspect of the wax dummies that caused some of the complaints. It was actually one of the wax figures in particular that people found inappropriate. In case you haven't guessed, there wasn't a whole lot of representation for any non-Caucasian residents of Calamity, a town that, according to the census, was actually quite diverse. The person who created these dummies, though, didn't seem to get the memo. And when they constructed this figure in particular, it appears they didn't base it off of any actual living human. The result was kind of a caricature of an Asian man doing the laundry. Honestly, it kind of resembled anti-war propaganda from World War II. Granted, whoever dressed this figure and constructed the display did the best they could to convey the very real professional laundrymen, many of whom did in fact come from China during the gold rush. 
needless to say, the whole thing was just really cringy and not well done, and we all knew it. So when somebody finally put in a formal complaint, nobody argued, and the ride was shut down for refurbishment. If you're enjoying Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Thank you. You can listen to Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, ad-free on Amazon Music. There is a reason that Audible is known as the home of storytelling. And now Audible brings you their new original, Night Vale Presents, Unlicensed. It comes from the creators of the chart-topping podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. In Unlicensed, a strange and sinister conspiracy is lurking in California's Inland Empire. And the unlikely detective duo, Molly and Lou, have to work together to unravel the mystery. Molly is a recent divorcee with a knack for knee who answers an ad to assist a private investigator named Lou, a brilliant but scattered detective. An inquiry into a workplace accident quickly turns into a complex conspiracy involving a missing boy, a suspicious wellness center, and the governor of California. Unlicensed is modern noir crime drama set in the outskirts of Los Angeles. The story explores the duality of humankind, the lasting impact of economic inequality, and the cult-like attributes of the modern-day wellness industry. To listen now, visit audible.com slash unlicensed. Once again, visit audible.com slash unlicensed to listen now. It is that exciting but often stressful time of the year when we have entire lists of people that we have to get gifts for and a lot of times we can't figure out what to get. But you know what says, I appreciate you, I'm thinking about you and I love you? Cake. A box of desserts shipped right to their door is sure to spread the cheer. James Beard award-winning celebrity chef Christina Tosi opened the first milk bar bakery in 2008 in New York City, and she has been shaking up the dessert scene ever since with her unique spin on iconic flavors. And here's the thing, you can now ship Milk Bar's desserts nationwide. It is the perfect gift for anyone and everyone in your life this holiday season. For a limited time, Milk Bar is offering their delicious new chocolate mint chip cake and truffles and peppermint bark snap cookies, just in time for the holidays. Also, get your hands on their limited quantity of lab drops, including peppermint tie-dye pie made in limited batches straight from their experimental kitchen. Or you can opt for my favorite, the classic Milk Bar pie, made with a toasted oat crust with a gooey butter filling. Every Milk Bar creation is made fresh, then thoughtfully and beautifully packaged so it arrives in perfect condition, ready to enjoy. While it's never too early to plan ahead, we are headed right for the holidays. So place an order today to schedule your treats to be delivered right before the holidays hit. But just in case you waited last minute and need desserts stat, they also offer fast and even overnight nationwide delivery. Just last week, we got a shipment of the Milk Bar Pie and we took it to a friend's giving and it was a hit. I did, however, manage to sneak one piece home just for me. So right now, Milk Bar has a special limited time offer. You can get $15 off any order of $80 or more when you go to MilkBarStore.com night. You'll get $15 off an order of $80 by going to MilkBarStore.com night. MilkBarStore.com night.
Being that the ride was our responsibility, Patrick and I were asked to move the heavy wax dummy out of the mine and into storage. This one's heavier than a real person, he grunted, heaving the wax figure into the mine car and onto me. As I pulled it into the car with me, my fingernails got stuck in the wax surface. The thin linen clothing that clung to the dummy's misshapen body had fused in places from years of delicate changes in temperature. I completely lost my grip when the shirt just ripped free from its waxy surface, taking discolored chunks with it and clouding the air with dust. Ugh, get it off me, I coughed. It was the closest I had ever been to one of these things, and until now I'd never noticed the dull, funky odor of the wax, like rotted cooking oil left in the sun. Oh man, it stinks, I choked. Patrick rolled it back just far enough for me to squeeze out from under it. I slid out of the cart and tumbled backwards into the dirt. What are they made of? I said, blowing my nose to clear it of the scent. Uh, wax, said Patrick plainly. Earwax, I retorted. He scratched at the face of the wax figure and leaned in for a sniff. <laughs> Maybe, he laughed. It took us a while to wheel it out of the old tunnels, but once we were outside, all we had to do was hoist it onto a waiting dolly. From there, we trucked it over to the storage barn located between the troughs set up for kids to pan for fool's gold. I wiped the sweat from my brow as I stepped into the barn, where the heat felt somehow more oppressive despite the shade. Is this thing going to be all right in here? Won't it melt? I asked. I don't think anybody cares too much what's going to happen to it. Besides, the damage is already done, Patrick replied, running his finger over a deep gash in the wax where the dummy had been laying against the edge of the mine car. Well, then what are they going to put in its place down there? I figured they would just, I don't know, make it look less problematic than we'd put it back. We both stood there gazing at the unfortunate figure and realized right away that there was no fixing it. Patrick opened up the barn door and ushered me to follow him out and said, Well, I hear the guy who made it is still around. Maybe he'll make us a new one. Patrick was right. The original artist, Danny Winter, was apparently still alive, and our boss, Patrick's granddad, decided we should reach out to Danny and ask if he'd be interested in commissioning another piece for the ride. He just didn't want to do it himself. When we met with him, he said with a deep sigh, I'll be honest here, old Danny and I didn't exactly part on good terms. He wasn't interested in leaving the mine, and unfortunately the state couldn't give him a suitable living situation down there. I mean, how are you going to bring a cave up to code? Honestly, he laughed. Patrick and I exchanged glances, knowing where this conversation was heading. He cleared his throat and continued, So I figured you two might be the best ambassadors we got. On account of you being an artist and you, Patrick, well, you have seniority at the park. What do you think? He explained that Calamity had done rather well the last few years, especially around Halloween, and being that the haunted mine car ride was such a staple of our holiday-themed rides, a little chunk of change had been put aside to update it. As for tracking down old Danny Winter, well, it wasn't too hard. Danny had no place to go, and since evicting the town's last remaining citizen would have reflected rather poorly on the new ownership, the state set aside one of the remote camping spots for him until he could get back on his feet. He could stay, free of charge for as long as he needed, and that is exactly what he did. Decades later, Danny was still in his rusted-out trailer parked on the far edge of Calamity. The next morning, Patrick and I clocked in, did our rounds, and then made the long trek over to Danny's trailer. The first knock seemed to go unnoticed. The second knock roused someone inside. The third knock brought forth a grumpy old man scowling through the dusty door window. What do you want? he growled. I attempted to enter the conversation with a bit of flattery, you know, one artist to another. Are you the person responsible for sculpting those beautiful wax figures? 
He let out an uproarious laugh, slamming his fist on the door as he doubled over cackling. After a moment, he regained his composure and wiped a tear from his eye. Beautiful, you say? I nodded through my bullshit. Yeah, you here to arrest me then? I looked over to Patrick, silently begging him to say anything at all. Eventually, after an elbow nudged the ribs, he joined in. Uh, actually, sir, we were hoping you'd make another. The door slammed so quickly it seemed like an accident. We waited for him to reopen it, but he didn't. I heard the cold hiss of a beer bottle being opened inside. I nudged Patrick again. Uh, sir, Mr. Winter, my grandfather is willing to offer a reasonable amount for another figure. We could hear Danny Winter's footsteps cross the small trailer and stop again at the front door. We could hear him on the other side, mulling it over. Who's your grandfather? He asked, muffled by the aluminum door between us. Patrick looked at me, unsure if he should admit it. I shrugged. I had no idea how bad the blood was. Patrick went for it. You actually know him, Henry Dolan? I think he negotiated... The door flew open, cutting off Patrick mid-sentence. It swung idly on its hinges as Danny Winter disappeared into the dark of his trailer. We stood at the open door, trying to decide if this was an invitation or a weird threat. You coming in or what? He asked from somewhere deep inside his musty trailer. A thick layer of desert dirt seemed to cover every surface, barely hiding beneath the shadows of the blacked-out windows. Daylight pierced through the cracks between sheets of tinfoil taped to the glass. Danny sat in an old recliner and listened to our offer, his gaze locked on Patrick as he spoke. I'll do it, Danny interrupted. Oh, great, I said. What kind of materials will you need? How long do you need? On one condition, Danny said, as if he hadn't heard me. One of you kids will need to help me out. My hands are old, and I'll need some assistance. I wasn't excited about the idea, but I offered anyway. Great, I I've done some sculpting in school, so I can totally help out. Never breaking his stare from Patrick, Danny leaned forward. I'd rather Patrick help me with this particular project. I'll need a reference. Danny went on to explain that every figure he had created was based on somebody in the town, somebody that he knew, somebody important. And as they left, Danny would cast their likeness in wax as a way to keep them there, as a way to keep him company. They clearly meant a lot to him, so we didn't mention the damage to the figure we moved. Patrick asked him why he didn't take the dummies with him when he left. They can't ever leave the mine. It's the only place cool enough to keep them from melting away. And I don't know what I'd do if that ever happened, he replied with a sad sense of regret. Danny gave us a list of supplies he would need for the project. It was simple enough, and we found most of the items at a local art store later that afternoon. We sourced the wax from the same beekeeper that Danny had worked with before, though now it was the son running the business. We offered to set up a workshop in the mine so he could just sculpt the figure there, but he declined. Instead, he said, he would use a wooden shack just behind his property and would line the walls with blocks of ice. When all was said and done and the supplies were delivered, old Danny dragged them back to his shack without so much as a thank you or a nod. Instead, as Patrick and I walked back to the car, Danny shouted to us with his back turned, You best not be late tomorrow. I've been waiting for this too long. Patrick rolled his eyes. He wasn't looking forward to spending his next few shifts with this odd old man in a small cold shack. I felt bad for him, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't relieved that it was him and not me. The next morning, Patrick sulked into the office wearing tattered clothes. Danny had told him to wear something he didn't mind getting ruined, but the end result was Patrick bearing a vague resemblance to the dirty old man himself. He clocked in like a soldier heading to war. We parted ways with a half-hearted wave, and while he set out across the arid campground, I made my way towards the cool relief of the caves. 
Hey, you smell that right, my boss yelled, leaning out his office door. I stopped beneath the hot sun, beating down on Main Street. I inhaled deeply but smelled only the kicked up dust and faint smell of fried dough from the funnel cake cart. He pointed over to the cluster of buildings around the gold panning. Water might need to be changed out. Tell Corey, will ya? I nodded and gave him the thumbs up, but something deep down inside of me knew it wasn't the water. I had a sinking feeling that he was smelling the decades of subterranean air that had been absorbed by the wax, now released because it was melting in the dry desert heat. I cut left and trekked up towards the wooden sidewalk towards the storage barn where the figure had been stored. Sure enough, the closer I got, the more pungent the smell became. A dull, sickly, sweet musk that made my stomach turn on instinct. As I passed the crystal clear water in the gold panning troughs, a strange buzz filled the air. It was a sound reminiscent of unburrowed cicadas, or the low hum of electricity. The closer I got to the barn, the louder it became. Between the deafening buzz and the wall of thick, sickening odor, I began to feel a little dizzy. The moment I opened the barn door, the acid rose in my throat, but I fought to keep it down as I stepped inside. The transition from the blinding light outside to the oppressive dark in the barn filled me with unease. My eyes struggled to adjust. For a few excruciating moments, I couldn't see further than a few feet inside. But as the scene emerged before me, I wanted nothing more than to close my eyes and unsee it. But I was rooted in place, and I couldn't look away. My fight-or-flight instincts had failed me. In the shadowy corner of the barn, in the spot that I had left it, I could see the wax figure moving. Somehow it had come alive, twitching in a strange blur. Its wax skin crawled across its body in shuddering waves that obscured any detail of its sagging, distorted face. The buzzing hum filled the air. My brain fought logic, deciding that somehow the melting wax dummy before me was now a living, breathing creature released from a nightmare. In reality, it was somehow worse. Flies, thousands of flies coating the stinking soft wax and trapping them in the melting flesh of the dummy. I wasn't sure if the smell had drawn the flies or if the flies had brought it with them, but either way, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I pulled my shirt over my mouth and stifled my breathing. The toxic air stung my eyes, blurring my vision. With each step I staggered forward, the flies buzzed and clouded before me, some escaping and others getting trapped. Good God in heaven, my boss choked out. I turned to see him standing a good distance away from the open barn doors. His hand clasped tightly to his mouth, trying not to inhale the awful odor. It's the dummy we removed, I explained, struggling to speak between short, shallow breaths. You gotta get it out of here, he said. I swear the second you opened those doors, I could smell it from my desk with the windows closed. You can't take it to the dumpster either. We'd stink outside campsite four. You gotta take it far. Use the cart if you have to. Just get it out of here immediately. He didn't even let me respond before running off to put as much distance as he could between himself and the stench. This is not what I had signed up for. From the creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, Wondery goes deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now Wondery is launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. 
dive deep into the most devious scams, manipulative cults, and the coldest of cases. Wondery's Exhibit C lets you view all the evidence through a detective's lens, taking you step-by-step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Now, if you know anything about me, you know there's nothing more I love than an investigative deep dive into criminal cases. I mean, it's not just what I live for and what I like to listen to. It's kind of what I do full time. So to join now, you can follow Wondery-Exhibit-C on Facebook or find them on the web at Wondery-Exhibit-C.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Looking back, I should have followed my instincts and quit right there on the spot, but I didn't want to put Patrick in a bad spot. He had stuck his neck out for me, so the least I could do was drag this smelly hunk of wax somewhere far away. It was just wax. It couldn't be that bad, right? Wrong. Boy, was I wrong. I backed the cart into the barn and right up to the fly-encrusted wax figure. I laid down a tarp, and the bed was low enough that I could mostly tip the dummy in, but the slick, melted wax and dead flies made it hard to find a grip. With my shoulder firmly planted in the figure's abdomen, I wrapped my arms around one leg and lifted. With a sickening squelch, the wax dummy's stomach gave way and ruptured. Thick brown goop oozed out and onto me, soaking into my clothes. It smelled horrific. As sludge emptied out from the hole in thick, viscous chunks, the dummy actually became lighter. I was able to heave it onto the back of the cart. I threw sawdust onto the waxy puddles it was leaving all over the floor and grabbed a shovel to scoop the gunky stuff off the ground and into the cart. My boss checked back in with a towel wrapped around his face. He tapped his watch and reminded me that visitors would be arriving soon. Now, the winter mine was just one of many that were dug into the earth surrounding Calamity. I figured one of those deep, dark holes out far was one of the best places to dispose of this rotting wax corpse. As I drove along the bumpy service road towards the furthest mine, the grueling heat further softened the lumpy mass behind me. When I finally reached a spot we called the gullet, a sinkhole left from one of the deeper mines, I backed the cart up to it. I grabbed hold of two corners of the tarp and pulled with all my strength. The melted mass and slimy dirt slid off the cart, landing with a wet splat. After dragging the tarp and its contents as close as possible, I then grabbed the other side and rolled it into a waxy, sludge-filled burrito. With each squelching roll, a little more clumpy fluid would leak out the ends until it was close enough for me to push in. I sat in the dirt and used my legs to get it in those last few inches until it dropped into the sinkhole. Almost immediately, the air cleared and I could breathe again. The drive back was long and hot and not doing any favors for the stench that has soaked into my clothing. I parked the cart and made my way to the offices, all the while doing my best to avoid visitors. Even at a distance, I could see them catching a whiff and looking around for the source, looking for me. I knocked twice on my boss's door, but he knew right away that it was me. I'll meet you outside, he shouted from the other side of the door. After a brief chat, I told him where I dumped the melted wax figure. He was listening, but I'm not sure he heard a thing I said. He was too focused on the brown, yellow, and green stains soaked all into my clothes. I could tell he felt bad for me. He pulled out some cash from his own wallet and told me to replace anything that was ruined and then sent me home to get cleaned up. 
The rest of my shift, he said, could be considered a paid personal holiday. Then he mentioned, if the smell didn't shower off, to call him in the morning so they could cover my shift. Luckily, a few showers later, in a garbage bag full of crusty, ruined clothing, I smelled tolerable. I spent the rest of the afternoon baking cinnamon buns to clear out my nostrils. I thought about calling Patrick and telling him what had happened, but I figured I'd just fill him in before work the next day. I didn't know then that I'd never get that chance. The next morning, I pulled into the parking lot right next to Patrick's car. Normally, we wait for each other to arrive and then make the trek in, but that day, he obviously decided not to wait for me. I clocked in and knocked on my boss's door. I told him I was going to sweep up and prep the area for the replacement figure for the ride. He thanked me with a smile, and then almost as an afterthought, he said, Have you seen Patrick this morning? I told him that it looked like he had gotten in early and already went over to Mr. Winter's house. We both shrugged and then left it. Down in the mineshaft, the cool, stale air felt good. As I walked past all the lifeless dummies, I thought back to how old Danny Winter said the figures were based on people of the town. Each waxy face was a subterranean ghost, haunting the mines below Calamity. Their blank stares were more unsettling than ever. I took a moment to explore the part of the tour that took you through the Winter Brothers' alcove, their little living area. It wasn't much different, to be honest, than Danny's trailer. It was sparse, yet somehow cluttered and claustrophobic. I'd always assumed the small pile of beer cans next to the bed was just some creative set dressing, but now I know better. I wouldn't be surprised if this was exactly how Danny left it on the day he was evicted. I also hadn't noticed that until that moment, only one of the two brothers was portrayed in wax. Edward had always been there up front, forever cooking up a plate of fake bacon over a stove made from a fan and ribbon. The figure representing Danny, on the other hand, was asleep in a cot facing the wall. I pulled back the flour sack blanket that covered him and discovered that old Danny's dummy was nothing more than flour sacks stuffed with hay. His head was a wig glued to a styrofoam mannequin bust. I guess it made sense. Danny didn't need another version of himself to keep him company. Most of my shift was spent removing any trace of the laundry scene and prepping it for the new figure, and afterwards I waited for Patrick in the saloon. A lot of the Calamity crew would stop in for a cold beer after they punched out. I wasn't old enough to drink, but they always let us order a box of fries and hang out with everyone else. The crew was finishing up their drinks and it was getting late, so I decided to check in with my boss. He said that he hadn't heard from Patrick all day. I would have called myself, but the boss was already dialing Patrick's phone. Someone answered and my boss flashed an odd expression of concern. It became clear that it wasn't Patrick on the other end of the line. After a few questions back and forth, my boss's face softened and he hung up with, Can't wait to see it. It had been Danny. Apparently, Patrick was busy with the wax, making sure it didn't harden. Danny said that they would be working late tonight, but that meant they would have the figure ready in the early afternoon the next day. We had been expecting to wait a few days, if not weeks, so this came as a pleasant surprise. Alone, I walked back to my car, still parked next to Patrick's, a layer of dust now covering it. That evening, after dinner, I called him, but it went straight to voicemail. I began to worry, but he texted me soon after with, Sorry, still working. Can't wait for you to see it. I replied, but then he didn't respond, and I fell asleep waiting. The next morning, I pulled into the exact same spot. Patrick's car was still there, unmoved. I clocked in and went straight to my boss. I tried to temper my concern, but I could tell he was a little freaked out by my freaking out. With little emotion, he said, 
I'm sure Patrick's fine. Danny mentioned they might pull an all-nighter since it's going to get rather hot today and tomorrow. For all we know, Patrick crashed on Danny's couch. I thought back to the filthy couch and knew better, but I didn't want to push it. I thought about going over to that decrepit old camper to see if he was still there, but my boss had other plans. Since the new figure was coming in, I had to secure a dolly, the cart, and figure a way to get it down there. I got busy with all that, and then the call came around 11. The figure was ready, and someone would have to come pick it up. The conversation was brief. I figured then that everything was fine, and that Patrick would help me get the figure to the park. But when I arrived at the beat-up old camper, I found out that that wasn't the case. Oh, he left pretty late last night, almost morning. He's sleeping now, I'm sure of it, Danny said dismissively. Nothing felt right. A general sense of unease settled in like a weighted blanket. Keeping my distance from the front door, I countered, but his car is still here. Danny looked at me in a strange way, like he was looking through me. It felt like he saw me, but didn't see me as a person. His dark eyes looked a little too similar to the soulless marbles he pushed into the skulls of his dummies. The way he responded felt more like a challenge than an answer. Friends of his picked him up, he said. I knew with all my heart that if Patrick called anyone to get him, it would have been me. I wanted to leave, to call the police, but something told me that the safest way out of this was to act like nothing was wrong. So that was exactly what I did. Danny helped me the best he could to get the large pine box into the back of the cart. The coffin-like container barely fit, hanging off the back. As Danny wrapped twine around it to secure it, he looked me dead in the eyes and said, When you're working with these materials, time is not on your side. These were fresh though, so I'd say it might be my finest work. Best get it down there quick before my masterpiece is ruined. I swallowed my fear and agreed with a nod. As I sped off down the dirt road, I watched Danny in the rearview mirror until he became a tiny dot hidden behind in a wake of dust. My co-worker Corey was waiting at the entrance of the ride. His impatience was palpable. Yeah, man, Corey, I'm worried about Patrick. I think something might have happened to him. I haven't heard from him since yesterday, I said, choking on the lump rising in my throat. Yeah, sounds like he's just getting out of the hard labor part. I'm sure he's fine. Let's get this thing out of the heat and underground. I don't have a lot of time. Reluctantly, I worked with Corey to get the crate underground. As soon as we got it in place, I raced back upstairs and called Patrick. Again, it went straight to voicemail. Suddenly, I remembered that we shared our phone location, so we knew whether or not to wait for the other if we were running late. I cursed myself for not thinking about it earlier. I opened the app and watched as it searched for his location, the previous spot hovering over Danny's trailer. I prayed for it to move. Eventually, it did. The little icon of Patrick laughing moved quickly over to Calamity, but for some reason it just pulsed over the general area, unable to hone in on his exact location. Still, I breathed a sigh of relief when the timestamp was for only a few minutes ago. His phone either lost power once he got back here, or he was in one of our many notorious no-signal zones. I figured he'd know exactly where to find me, so I went back underground. With nothing to do but wait, I went to work opening up the crate. I pried off the front panel and let it fall to the ground. The air left my lungs with a gasp of unexpected shock. The wax dummy inside the crate, surrounded by packing straw and staring out with those soulless black eyes, looked strikingly familiar to Patrick. The likeness was uncanny. I don't know what I expected it to look like. I knew that Danny used Patrick as a reference, but I definitely didn't expect this. I stumbled backwards, unconsciously backing away from the replica of my friend. 
a cold chill sent shivers down my spine and I unwittingly backed into a nearby figure. I tried to catch it as it tipped, but the wax dummy was awkward and top-heavy. It hit the ground with a sickening thud, cracking its dry wax coating. Suddenly, a smell wafted up from it. Not the same as the rotted dummy I threw down the mine shaft, but pungent nonetheless. I tried to pull it back up by the arm into a standing position, but the arm gave way and separated from the body, sending me backwards. I fell hard onto the carved rock floor, the dummy's arm still in my grasp. The familiar saccharine sweet odor seemed to emanate from it. It immediately became apparent that the hard, waxy concoction was nothing more than an outer shell. The figure wasn't completely made in wax. I got up and peered closely in the dim light at the hole left where the arm had come off. It clicked with the macabre realization that the strange odor was not coming from the wax. It was coming from inside the wax. I looked down at the waxy arm in my hand and saw the rounded white protrusion that looked like... No, it couldn't be. An actual human bone. I looked back in terror at the wax figure and flung the arm down, panicked. My hands shaking, I pulled out my phone and sent a text to Patrick. Where are you? I typed furiously. I hit send and waited. Ding! I turned my head towards the sound, towards the lifeless figure still packed in straw in the crate, and the last thing I saw before passing out was the faint glow of a cell phone coming from the wax statue that once used to be Patrick. You must be thinking, like I first was when I read the story, that no part of this could be real. Well, guess again. Today's story about a haunted funhouse ride is actually based on a shocking discovery made on December 8, 1976, at The Pike, an amusement park in Long Beach, California. During a taping of the television show The Six Million Dollar Man, a gruesome discovery was made by an unwitting prop guy. During a scene in which Steve Austin rode the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse ride where corpses, skeletons, and an assortment of grotesque mannequins pop out for a quick scare, the prop guy was searching for something to showcase in the shot. So hanging from a beam in the corner of the ride, he found a very convincing dead dummy. Only, it wasn't a dummy. It was the very real and very old mummified corpse of Elmer McCurdy. As the poor prop guy tried to move Elmer into the shot, the corpse's brittle arm broke off, revealing human bone and muscle tissue. The police were immediately called and the mummified body was taken to the LA coroner's office. Dr. Joseph Choi conducted an autopsy and determined that after dying of a gunshot wound to the chest, McCurdy's corpse had become petrified, covered in wax and phosphorus paint. Following a series of clues, including the discovery of embalming fluid containing arsenic, something that was only used until the late 1920s, a bullet jacket used until the 1940s, and injuries and ailments associated with minors at the turn of the century, they were able to narrow down the age of the corpse. The final clue came in the form of a 1924 penny and a ticket stub hidden inside of McCurdy's mouth. The ticket led investigators to Louis Sani's Museum of Crime and Dan Sani, who was able to confirm that the body was that of Elmer McCurdy. But how did he get there? On October 4, 1911, Elmer McCurdy died shortly after stealing $46, two jugs of whiskey, and a conductor's watch in what has come to be known as, quote, one of the smallest train robberies in the history of train robberies. Regardless, a $2,000 bounty was put on his head, and in the early morning hours of October 7th, 
three sheriffs surrounded the hay shed where McCurdy was sleeping off his whiskey-induced hangover. After an hour-long standoff, shots were fired back and forth and McCurdy was killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest, which he sustained while lying down. After his body went unclaimed, the undertaker, Joseph Johnson, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative. He then shaved the face, dressed the body in a shirt, and then stored it in the back of his funeral home while he waited for the next of kin to claim it. Refusing to bury the body until he was paid for his services, Johnson decided to exhibit McCordy's corpse to make some money and recoup the cost of the embalming. Johnson posed McCurdy with a rifle and billed him as the bandit who wouldn't give up, the mystery man of many aliases, the Oklahoma outlaw, and the embalmed bandit. Posed in the corner of his funeral home with a nickel admission fee, McCurdy became a popular attraction and eventually drew the attention of carnival promoters. After rejecting many offers on October 6, 1916, a man named Aver stepped forward as Elmer's long-lost brother from California. Johnson had no choice but to release the body. Then it was put on a train and sent to San Francisco. Only, it didn't go to San Francisco and Aver was not McCurdy's brother. Aver was actually James Patterson, owner of the Great Patterson Carnival Show, and McCurdy's body was sent to Arkansas City, Kansas, where it featured in Patterson's Traveling Carnival. This operation was eventually sold to Lewis Sonny, who then transferred the corpse to his traveling museum of crime, featuring wax replicas of famous outlaws. After a few brief appearances in other media and exhibitions, McCurdy was eventually sold to Spoonie Singh, the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. But he didn't stay there for long. During an expedition at Mount Rushmore, McCurdy's corpse sustained some damage in a windstorm, losing the tops of his ears, his fingers, and toes. When the corpse was returned back to Singh, he deemed it too gruesome and not lifelike enough to display, and therefore it got forgotten and lost and somehow ended up in the corner of the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse Ride. Tonight's tale was written by Jay Richardson. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited by Anton Doty and Matt Sewell. It's mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake. Now that you're spooked to the bone and won't be able to sleep all night, please go ahead and follow, rate, and review us. Sweet dreams.